0: All right, good evening, everyone. Good evening, welcome to Hillcrest and week number four of our journey through the New City Catechism. Uh, and if you weren't here for our introductory series, uh, our introduction to the series, the New City Catechism is a 52-week question and answer series uh, that is modeled after and, and pulls its... Uh, content from uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism. If you will uh, the best of both worlds in 52 questions, one for each week of the year to be repeated ad nauseum until we go home to be with our Savior in glory. Tonight, by way of introduction, I would like for us to read from Deuteronomy chapter 6 um, what I believe to be a helpful uh, text of scripture um, to introduce us to the questions we'll cover this evening. So if you will, turn with me in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and when you have your place there, I invite you to join with me and stand in honor of the reading of the Word. Beginning in verse 4, familiar words to many of us. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, such as an instance like this, the catechesis, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise." Um, what I heard called the non-event. The non-event, this gentleman said, uh, uh, is the best part of life. The non-event is the best part of life. That's what I feel like is being described there. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, during the non-event, write these things into the hearts and minds of your children. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets, Between your eyes, all of this implies familiarity and proximity. In verse nine, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your word and for the evening we have together. May you bless the next few minutes as we devote our minds and our attention to you in the worship of what the rabbis would call the highest form of worship, uh, the study of your scriptures. Um, bless it and be blessed by it, we pray and ask. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Um, many years ago, Stephen Curtis Chapman released a song called The Great Adventure, and it begins with this echoing refrain, Saddle up your horses, right? You know the song? Okay, one person knows the song. And a few people nodded um, and did one of these. All right. Uh, that's a bit how I feel tonight um, as we begin uh, this study. I feel like I need to say to you, saddle up your horses, right? Sort of like, hold on, uh, we're gonna do something um, what I think will be beneficial and exciting tonight, but it will also require a measure of uh, attention uh, after eating baked potatoes <laughs> on, a, a, on a late Wednesday evening. So hang in there, let's talk. Uh, This week we're going to explore questions 7 and 8 of the New City Catechism. Question 7 asks, what does the law of God require? Now this is a response to question 6, where uh, question 6 asks, how do we glorify God? And the answer to the question comes, well, God's given to us His word. We glorify God by obeying His word, His law. So then question 7 comes, well... What does the law say, right? If I'm to glorify God by obeying his law, I have to know what his law says. And all of this is of course a response to the earlier questions which ask, how and why did God create us? Well, God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and what? Glorify him, yeah. And so it's perfectly reasonable to build upon the back of each each question. Why are we here? What is man's primary purpose? Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Well, man's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the question two comes, well, what rule has God given that we should bring him glory? And the answer comes resoundingly, quite simply, he's given to us his word as a rule, as a guide, as we'll explore later, guardrails for how to bring him glory glory. So if we're to believe and stand on the answer that it is the word of God, or you might say the law of God, that is the rule by which we bring him glory, we have to know what the law says and what the law requires. To borrow a phrase from uh, Alistair Begg, the law points us to Christ and Christ points us back to the law. It is one of the more simple summarizations of the role and purpose of the law that I've ever heard, and it's good and right. The law cannot justify, meaning, the law cannot make us at peace with God. Mankind is incapable of walking up the ladder rungs to be at peace with God through keeping the law. So it cannot justify. We need Jesus to grant to us eternal life as a gift that we cannot earn, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And then only Jesus can and only Jesus did earn eternal life. As the late R.C. Sproul said, Jesus is the only man who deserves to be in heaven. And then he went on to say, we are saved by works, just not our own works, right? Rather, of course, the works of Jesus Christ. And so once we have received this gift by faith of eternal life, this position of being at peace with God, then we are, if you will, again, returned to the law as a wise, inspired, and perfect code for living, again, to borrow a phrase from Alistair, uh, living God's way in God's world. And I appreciate that very much because if you think about this, God created us, He created the concept of work, right? He invented the idea of affection. He developed out of the inspiration of his perfect mind in eternity past the very notion of familial connection. And then he dropped us into this world that was created with the right conditions to sustain life. And not just life on a survival level, but life on a flourishing level. I saw a video of a brief recounting of a group of men and a group of women who were dropped off at the shore of a deserted piece of land, like an island, and the subtitles were, Women, Goal, Survive. Men, Best camp out Ever. <laughs> and what ensued was, This is going to sound very sexist, but what ensued was these women not knowing what to do, being very concerned that their clothes were going to get wet, not being able to sustain a fire, being cold and miserable and hungry, and the group of men, like, building a fire and catching fish, and they're, like, having a good time because, what, well, these guys have been doing this their whole lives, you know, and the women weren't, and now, now that's a bit skewed, but it helps to paint a little bit of the picture. God airdropped us onto this world, not just to survive, not just to make it through the next day, jittering and cold and hungry, but we're still alive. No, he he made us to be like that group of men who were fishing and laughing and singing and had a fire and they're dancing, you know. There's an element of flourishing that God offers to us as he invented this thing we know of as human existence. And so then God comes along after the fall of man into sin, and he says, Look, if you're going to flourish, you know, if you're going to thrive um, in this world, in a fallen state, here is a code by which to live. Right? So, questions seven and eight sort of bring us to the law. What does. The law of God require, and the answer comes, the law of God requires personal, perfect, perpetual obedience, that we, as Deuteronomy 6 states, love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then Jesus, of course, summarizes in quotes, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. Very practical, summarized wisdom for how to live God's way in God's world. And then question 8 says, well, what, what is the law stated in the Ten Commandments? And then it's summarized, the Ten Commandments are summarized in sentence form as the answer to question number 8. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God or take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony or lie. And you shall not covet. Richard Sibbs comes in with the commentary that's available on the app and the book that is available. He says this, As we receive all from God, so we should lay all at his feet. I love that right there. As we receive all from God, we should lay all at His feet and say, I will not live in a course of sin that will not stand with the favor of my God. True freedom is found when by the Spirit the heart is renewed, is enlarged, and becomes subordinate to God in Christ. A man is in a sweet frame when his heart is made subject to God. Thus, Brian Chappelle asserts simply, how can we glorify God? Well, we can do as he said, and we can believe what he said. Okay, now, that's a bit of a long introduction. That's enough already, in fact. And so over the next four Wednesdays, we'll be exploring the 10 Commandments, what they are, what they require, what they imply, and so on, a few at a time, four weeks in a row. All of this as a means of exploring how can we glorify God? By obeying his word. What does his word require? Here it is, okay? In this lecture, in what I'm calling the law and introduction, I hope to establish a broad framework onto which we can build as we think of and apply the law of God in a New Testament church context. Let us then, this evening, with the time remaining, labor to understand, number one, the role of the law for ancient Israel, the role of the law related to Christ, and the role of the law in the life of the new covenant people of God, or the believers. Let's begin. Number one, let's discuss the role of the law for ancient Israel. I'm going to come back to that phrase. The first of four roles the law was to play in the life of ancient Israel. Number one, it is a guide for human flourishing. A guide for human flourishing. This code of conduct, if followed would promote peace, honesty, and selflessness, man to man. Can you imagine living in a world where no one steals, right? Where there is no such thing as adultery, where there is no such thing as a lie, as in it doesn't happen. Well, a world that functioned like that, a people that worked that way, well, that would certainly promote peace among people, right? So this code of conduct, if followed, would promote peace, honesty, selflessness, man to man, and it would invite blessing from God to man. This is what the psalmist describes in the great psalm, chapter 1. Many of you know it. It's among the most beautiful things to quote and to read and to meditate on. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither. In all he does, he prospers. What is that but the psalmist saying, the law of God is like a guide for ideal human flourishing. As a general rule, this would promote peace from man to man and blessing from God to man. And then the great Solomon, in teaching his son, comes along with the proverb that, that the athletes like to put on their shoes and that we like to put on our Facebook post walls. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Yeah, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths, right? But what's the, what's the crux of that? Lean not on your own understanding right lean not on your own understanding why because your understanding is flawed but the law of God is perfect right furthermore the wisdom of this code as it was to be lived out in ancient Israel it would be so evidently different that it would be like a a beacon of light shining in the darkness. And this is what is meant by the promise from God, where he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, keep these things and do them, that will be your wisdom and your understanding, listen, in the sight of the peoples, who, <laughs> when, they, <laughs> when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? If lived out, the watching world would go, wow. This was the point. So it's not only not only is human flourishing optimized in a community lived under god's law but the fame and renown of god is spread to the world's population beyond israel as isaiah said a light for the nations so first and foremost the role of the law in ancient israel well it was to be a guide for human flourishing that would bring glory to God and it would bring peace to them and God's blessing on them as a community of people the second thing would be the regulative principle of worship the regulative principle of worship now this is the assertion that we must worship God in the way that he has revealed himself and the way he has commanded us to worship him in his word the principle is built on the five biblical commands concerning worship. We must, 1 Corinthians 14, worship in ways that edify one another, not just create confusion and chaos. And therefore, again, number two, in a a proper and orderly manner. And then, of course, John four, where Jesus says that it isn't a place where soon enough God's people will worship him but a a spirit, in spirit and in truth. And then finally in Hebrews, chapter 12, we worship in reverence and in awe. I wish we had time to read all those texts together. But these establish what is the regulative principle for worship. Now, while the regulative principle for worship is a New Testament and Reformation doctrine The origins are found in the Levitical system of worship, which is itself rooted simply in the Ten Commandments. At its core, the first four commandments assert that there are appropriate ways to interact with God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. It is an inappropriate way to interact with me by having other gods being worshipped alongside me. Right? You shall not make images and bow down to them. This is an inappropriate way to interact with me, God. And beyond, we could keep keep going. Everything outside of the ways that God prescribes are appropriate ways to interact with him. God will consider an abomination. And from this we get the phrase, we must come to God on his terms. As we venture into Exodus and Leviticus, the entire system of sacrifices and holy days and ritual worship of God are like branches coming out of the root being commands one through four. There are appropriate ways to approach God, and all other ways will be considered an abomination. The third role that the word, the law, was to play in the life of ancient Israel, was that it was to communicate God's essential holiness and mankind's fallenness due to sin. To communicate God's essential holiness and mankind's fallenness due to sin. In the Ten Commandments specifically, reverse engineering tells us a lot about God and man. I like the concept of reverse engineering, right? Unbuild that thing, and you'll learn a lot about The maker and the builder and the process and perhaps the why. Sort of like this. If mankind must be told it is a crime against God and man to lie, to steal, to covet, then clearly these are natural to fallen man. He must be told, you shall not. Right? Stop lying. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, it's an offense to God as your creator, and it's an offense from man to man. In our fallenness, we must be told we are sinners. And in this, the essence of the law code comes to the foreground. Laws that restrict and condemn natural behavior. Shows the man he is naturally a lawbreaker. In the Levitical prescription for worship, blood being spilled in animal sacrifice communicates the severity of that natural lawbreaking. As man was required in ancient Israel to bring the lamb to the to the gate or the doorway of the tabernacle, or the temple. His left hand was to be placed on the head of the beast, and he was to hold the ceremonial knife and slit the animal's throat and have its blood poured out there. Hopefully there, and often no doubt certainly there with his family, all who are present are looking at the severity of the natural man breaking God's law, look at the tragedy of the animal who was slain, right? And so man is reminded again and again in ancient Israel, you are a natural law breaker and there are dire consequences to that before God. Furthermore, being required to bring offerings communicate the nature of offense and payment for restitution. These things combined then create the basic worldview for the ancient Jew. God is holy, I have offended him. Look at all that's required for me to approach him. Look at the blood spilled, look at the offering required. I must bring these things to him Why? Because he is holy and I'm a lawbreaker. And this will be reinforced in the mind of the ancient Jew. God is holy. I have offended him. My instincts need to be corrected. I need to be told my understanding is flawed. Don't lean on it. My offenses need to be paid for. A substitute must die in my place in order that my sin might be covered in the eyes of a holy God. This is the basic point of the law for ancient Israel, to be a guide for human flourishing, to communicate God's essential holiness, and to show that there is a regulation for how God is to be approached. The fourth unique role that the law plays in ancient Israel is this. In a word, desperation. Desperation. Ultimately, the law would act as a mirror showing man just how sinful he is. Because, try as he might, man will always fail. I can't remember. I quoted this recently. I can't remember if it was... I think it was C.S. Lewis. He said, A man doesn't know how sinful he is until he tries very hard to be good, right? Try as we might, we will always, as Paul says in Romans 3.12, turn aside. Despite God's blessing, despite God's provision, and even despite God giving his law, here are the guardrails, and we just, you know, romp right over them off to the side. The kids and I are reading through 1 Kings right now after having read through 1 and 2 Samuel, kind of one chapter at a time, roughly, exploring the life and the ascent of King David, and now the ascent of King Solomon, the building of the temple, the immensity of the wealth that he accumulated and the wisdom that he enacted as king over the nation. And so we're reading through... 1 Kings, and we got to the chapter, I think it was just last night, maybe it was two nights ago, that describes Solomon's heart being turned away from the worship of God to the worship of the the idols of his foreign wives. And the narrator includes this, this caveat. Even though God said, Don't marry foreign women. They will turn your heart from worshiping God to worshiping their idols. Solomon did it anyway. And then the narrator summarizes Solomon's life. He did not walk in the ways of God like his father David, but he did chase after the idols of his foreign wives. Now, This happened after God gave the regulation, after God appeared to him twice and gave to him supernatural wisdom that surpassed all else in human history. Now, this would confuse the reader. And naturally, my kids go, huh, he was told not to. He's the wisest dude in the world, and he does it anyway. What's that about? and the inevitable result happens exactly as God said it would. How could he not see this coming? He's the wisest guy in the world, right? How could such a wise man make such a foolish mistake and be thus summarized as one who abandoned his God? And in that moment, it occurred to me, David's character was forged in hardship, and Solomon's was forged in luxury. Luxury. And not even the supernatural wisdom granted to him by God could overcome the character flaws of fallen natural man. Desperation. What the law in ancient Israel is meant to teach us and them is that man doesn't just need a law code for life. He needs more than that, right? Because they were given that, and they still, woo, yeeted off the side of the road, right? Yeeted is uh, what the kids say, because I'm hip. What the law teaches, what Israel displays, is that we need more than a code for life. What we need is a new core a new start right try as he might all have turned aside and it is this core that the prophets address Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things lean not on your own understanding the heart is deceitful and desperately sick who can understand it and then comes Ezekiel swooping in if you will like a hero with the promises of God, that on the basis and on the back of the cry for forgiveness, I, God promises, will give you a new heart. I'll give you a new spirit. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you, which will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules nothing short of this promise being fulfilled could turn man from his law-breaking tendencies not wisdom not blessing not code and as long as man failed to perfectly uphold the law he would be doomed by the law and ultimately this is one of the great roles the law was to play in the life of ancient Israel to bring man to a place of honest desperation. Try as I might, I cannot do it, right? So those are the four roles Israel was to play, excuse me, the four roles the law was to play in the life of ancient Israel. Let's consider number two, having purposely taken more time on the first than the next two, Let's consider number two then the law of the, the role of the law related to Christ. Well, we'll do this in a series of words. First, two words as a pair, and then three words as a triplet. The first two words are the word foreshadow and champion. The role of the law related to Christ is to first be a foreshadowing of the one who is to come he is both the fulfillment of what the law foreshadows in worship and sacrifice and fellowship and he is the only man to live a human life perfectly keeping the law and in that he is our champion colossians 2 paul talks about the foreshadowing nature Saying, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. One of the things that my kids like to do when we're walking through parking lots, the boys especially, is they like to say, Oh, I just stepped on your head as they step on my shadow in the parking lot, right? There is the shadow and there is the substance, right? There is a fuzzy picture outline and then there's the real McCoy. And Paul says, with the law of God, we are given a fuzzy picture outline. And when Christ has come, it is all, if you will, burst into living color. He is the substance. Of that which was formerly but a shadow secondly then he is the champion he is the as they say true and better Adam I'd love to read all of Romans chapter 5 and spend the next hour with you in Romans chapter 5 I know I would love it and and I don't know I, I wouldn't I don't think I'd have a job tomorrow that's assuming I made it home And I wasn't, like, murdered by the children's ministry workers on my way out the door, right? Thou shalt not kill. So just a bit of Romans 5. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Look, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, which is to say, in Adam, we all are sinners, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Right? So he is the champion. Uh, There's a great scene in the movie Troy where Brad Pitt's character Achilles is called upon to fight on behalf of his army against the opposing army's chosen champion. This great big towering hulk of a human being who's scarred and mangled and muscly and you know like my image of myself in my mind's eye, right? And with one... Seemingly effortless swipe of his sword, Achilles tackles the giant brute of a champion to the great astonishment and dismay of the opposing army. And the army for which Achilles represents shares in the fruit of his overwhelming and sudden victory. He is their champion. What he has earned, they enjoy not by any effort of their own, simply by being, if you will, on the right side. And so it is by the works of the law Jesus earns his rightful place in heaven. But he does so not merely for himself, he does so for you. Which brings us to the three words, two words and then three words, foreshadowing and champion, three words, death, resurrection, And promise. I told you to saddle up. I told you. Like come on. Get ready. I told you. There's a lot to this. Introductory lecture. In his death. He takes the penalty. That he does not deserve. But we do. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us. From the curse of the law. By becoming a curse. For us. The sin of man was in. Has invoked the consequence of death, Genesis three three. But Jesus, as the foreshadowing law foretells, has his blood spilled as a substitute, First John two twelve. In his resurrection, death resurrection promise. In his resurrection, he is the evidence that all men will die. And all will be raised to judgment, either unto eternal life or unto eternal damnation. His resurrection is the final um, authenticating miracle to give weight to his claims. What the signs and wonders had accomplished that already. His resurrection later then, of course, serves again as the evidence that all man will die and all men will be raised, either unto eternal life or unto eternal judgment. 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15 is another one of those chapters I would love to spend an hour with you exploring right now as we consider this concept. It is on the basis of all of this that Jesus makes the simple promise. Believe in me, do not perish, and have eternal life. See, see, all of the past 40 minutes of lecture are summarized in this simple promise from Jesus. Believe in me and have eternal life. It is an intricate design, so intricate, like a masterpiece of artwork, uh, but also like a great painting can be appreciated by the the simplest mind, on the simplest of terms. And so Jesus compels us to come to him with the faith of a child in Matthew 18. Right? Right? It is simple enough to believe by faith, and yet it is complex enough to never exhaust. So you might say Jesus is both the law incarnate and the keeper of the law, champion of the elect. Well, that brings us to number three and the role of the law in the life of the believer. Again, to use that phrase, Jesus returns us to the law. Right? The law is given to mankind. Mankind is given this great framework for a life to flourish, to live God's way in God's world. He is brought to a place of a recognition that God is holy and I am sinful, I must make penance, I must make offerings, blood must be spilled to cover my sin, I must not lean on my own understanding, try as I might, I can't do it, I need the new heart, the new core that will enable actual obedience as promised by Ezekiel. And then, in comes Jesus, and he does all of that which is required. And as Jesus leaves, he points us back to the law. And he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Shall love your neighbor as yourself. In this are contained all of the law and the prophets. He returns us to the law, again, now as a framework for human flourishing, only under grace, instead of unto desperation, make sense, man, I tried to tell you at the beginning of the night, I can tell, you're just like, you're swimming, I, I can see it in your eyes, you're going, I'm gone, I'm done, I warned you, you didn't listen to me. Solomon, right? An inch is an inch. An inch is not a foot. A foot is not six inches. It's a standard unit of measure. So too, God has given us his word as an infallible, inspired, authoritative standard. As those who are believers, we say we are under the jurisdiction of our king, we're committed not only to his forgiveness for our justification, but also we're committed to the authority of his standard. As such, the the Reformation produced for us the five solas, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christos, by Christ alone, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone, and the first, sola scriptura, which simply states, the Bible alone is our highest authority. So what is the role of the law in the life of the believer? The Bible alone is our highest authority. 2 Timothy 3.16, right? It's all inspired and it's perfect. In Hebrews, it is living and active like a sword that can cut into you. Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road, right? And so Jesus points us back to his word. Now, the interesting thing about the Reformation and the five solas is that there was another sola, or there was another Latin phrase, and it wasn't sola, but it was tota, tota scriptura. So not just the scripture alone, but tota, as you might infer, the totality of the scriptures alone. Not the papal bulls, not the mere words of man, not my inclinations, But the scriptures alone and the totality of scripture. Not these parts or only these parts. Because the scriptures alone are authoritative in the life of the believer. You never want to participate in a Bible study that asks the question. What does this verse mean to you? That is called the reader response method. And it is a road to gross theological error. We want to practice what is called the authorial intent method, authorial intent method, which asks what did the original author intend to say and how did the original audience understand it? By approaching the Bible this way, we place guardrails for interpretation and guardrails for application. And these are not arbitrary. They are those set by God in his inspiration and in his communication. As a reminder of what is required to approach God, we are reminded of Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And as a framework for bringing glory to God, we are reminded again the question and the answer. How do we bring glory to God? What does the law of God require? That we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Not as a means to earn God's favor, or as a list of requirements to be at peace with him. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God that no one should boast. Not a result of works. Therefore, as we explore the law in the coming weeks, we can explore its requirements, appreciate its wisdom, revel in God's revelation, recognize the veracity of obedience as a response to grace, and never get hung up on the notion that obedience earns God's favor, but rather that those on whom God's favor rests obey him, because they love him we'll we'll stop there for tonight father thank you for your word and for the time to carefully consider it bit by bit piece by piece give us grace as we attempt to live a life that brings you glory in christ's name and for his sake we pray amen